Hey, you dear listeners, Future Johnny here, recording another message while making edits. These usually don't happen this much, but it's been a busy few weeks and this episode requires some context. Our guest here, Octavia, is actually one of the reasons we're covering this story. It was originally suggested by Wes and maybe a few others I'm forgetting, but Octavia gave it such a glowing review that it pushed it up the list to the top. Unfortunately, the evening we were scheduled to record, there was some confusion and miscommunication which led to GSV not making it. But while we were waiting in the voice call, we got to talking about the book, and eventually when we realized we wouldn't be able to contain our desire to have an episode, we set up our backup recording and just went ahead and did one. So this is going to be missing some 10 to 30 minutes of our initial chatting when we didn't have a recording running, and it has a few audio issues caused by the backup recorder being mildly subpar, but I hope our uncontainable exuberance for the subject will make up for it. Enjoy! did assume that like what's going on there is they have that one esque in that scene with the head priest is correct about the head priest's perception of their own gender and that the head priest would consider themselves to be a woman but that that conception of what a woman is is like different from what we would typically expect of femininity in like western culture right like typically women aren't depicted with beards well yes but at the same time it also very consistently says priest and not priestess yes and that's something i also wanted to talk about that i think i forgot to every other time is that it's lord of the ragi which is so weird because it's one of the few like masculine titles like it's one of the few masculine words the ragi ever use is is lord yeah yeah well and and andrew me and i as a character is such a weird like anomaly in the story itself like from the moment you're introduced to the character it's almost like every interaction you're having with him is putting the narrator in this slightly hypnotic trance Hmm. i don't know if i would have described it that way i mean definitely there's like they're in such a like elevated position of power that everyone has to act very differently around them. I I, I do not know what the, the deal with Anander is exactly. Like it's based on what's happened. It seems like they have a set of goals that aren't necessarily shared by the rest of the the broader Ragi society because uh uh Esk talks about how there's a lot of like discontent with the choices Anander makes. Yeah, it's often like like it seems a lot of times like like Anander kind of rules in spite of the ratch instead of like with it. Yeah. And it's like it was something GSV and I talked about that I think either it might have been in the first episode, it might have been in the second, is that Anna Anders practical setup like the fact that there's a bunch of minds but they're all connected and they all share a sense of self is interesting insofar as how it relates to the problems of authority and empire right because like a a problem that happens a lot historically is that you have an empire that grows beyond the ability of its central control mechanisms to actually effectively manage everything, right? But because there's a bunch of Ananders, they can kind of circumvent that to some degree. Like, they can literally be in multiple places at once, thinking about multiple different things at once, while only having one set of central objectives in mind. Right. And there's another factor, too, which is that there's the one of the primary like issues that is presented to to like like people who make the argument that like an enlightened dictator would actually be a superior form of government is that even if you manage to roll the dice and get your get your perfectly enlightened dictator who's legitimately actually a really good dude mm-hmm. yeah eventually he's going to die and be replaced by his idiot insane kid who like causes a bunch of calamities and if you just if they're immortal then that's not an issue yeah it's like 
this is it makes sense that this system exists right and this is something that we that gsv and i have talked about liking in other sci-fi works we've read when like you know obviously there's some fantastical things here but at least in terms of how the social and political infrastructure is set up you can see why this evil space empire has not like collapsed and why people are on board with it Oh yeah, I mean it's it's it, it's really interesting because there's a sense where it's like it it exists as a sort of like low maybe not entirely low key burn on like neoliberal like Western culture, mm-hmm. and it's also in a sense a like deconstruction of like the culture if you think about it because mm-hmm. here you have a society that is presented as operating in a very similar way to the culture where you have these super powerful minds that govern everything and, you know, manage resource distribution and make Mm -hmm. sure all the citizens are cared for and everything's super nice. And yeah, they're kind of expansionist and like, like the interventionist, but they're so good. Doesn't that make them good? You know, it's Mm -hmm. a good thing that they're going into these terrible places and like fixing things. We want that. Right. Right. Like the Shisano was not a good situation before they got there. Right. You, and like, Esk makes this argument, right? She she says to uh, Dr. Strigan, like, in every case except for the, the really bad one, Garcidae. Thank you. In, in every case except for Garcidae, after, you know, the uh, the Rachai go in and take over a place, they, they will have people after the fact who say, like, thank you for doing this. Things are so much better than they were before. You have lifted us out of darkness, yada, yada, etc. So there are some people, at least, who are very grateful for what's going on. But definitely, I agree. And that's, that's not something we had actually... We, we had not drawn that parallel, because definitely... The culture and I'm those are all th- those things you said are all true about the culture. But just because I don't know if everyone who's listening to this is also going to have read the, the culture books, because I know there's a bunch of people that are joining from the ancillary justice fandom. But like the culture as a series is very positive on the idea of the main civilization in it, which is called the culture. Oh. Like there's a bunch of people who raise concerns about what they're doing. And those concerns are to various degrees, like, taken seriously by the story, but the broad authorial position is pretty clearly what they're doing is an ultimate utilitarian good, and the means that they're using are pretty much always justified. And so they, so with with the Raj, you're presented with a civilization that operates in arguably a very, very similar manner, with very similar ideological justifications. And similar mm-hmm. outcomes, but then it gets more into the details, and you start to see how complicated and morally unclear and messy that actually ends up being. I would probably quibble that there are like significant differences in underlying ideology that do then change the some of how things materially are. Like in the culture, bodily autonomy is like extremely important. And I don't think we've seen anything that suggests the Rachai see it as extremely important. Um, uh, and like freedom is the broad goal of the culture is to like increase the freedom of sentient beings. And the Rachai seem to have a more moral imperative in a very different way, right? Like they're, they're doing this because they want to bring civilization to these places, not freedom. And yeah, you know, you, you can definitely say like, you know, ultimately what you're doing is more important than why you say you're doing it. But the culture doesn't have martial law, right? It doesn't go and institute martial law in places and it doesn't like execute everybody uh, or like fundamental, like force fundamental changes onto people's minds. The, the, what the culture often does wrong, though, or at least, you know, by by our interpretation of it is not do enough in various circumstances and like allow allow evil things to continue happening because it's politically inconvenient to stop them, which is, I think, what does make it a good, interesting critique of neoliberalism in a lot of ways. But here, I think it's a much more overt, like, you know, they are both not necessarily doing this for the right reasons and both and also not necessarily justified in using the means that they use to do it. 
But like from their perspective, it is the right reasons. Like they mm-hmm. have a moral justification for doing this that they feel very strongly about that, you know, relates to thousands and thousands of years of their cultural heritage and their religious traditions and the like ways they see the world around them and the fact mm-hmm. that they are so much more technologically advanced in all these places that they're invading. Yeah. Like it seems like they have this kind of like we're 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 the like elder culture. We're more advanced. We're more civilized. We have a responsibility to bring our enlightened values to these like lesser places, so that the people in them can have better lives than they would under their like oppressive whatever governments that existed before we showed up. Yes, but then also like another big theme here is hypocrisy, right? Because it's like, oh yeah, we're going to we're going to liberate the people here who would have been suffering under oppressive regimes and also, you know, obviously for political expedience, we're going to go to the people at the top of those oppressive hierarchies and we're going to talk to them about how we run this place because they know what they're doing because the yeah, Raj- yeah. <laughs> the Raj- I just aren't very, you know, they aren't they aren't as perfect as they would hope they are. Yes. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I I think a lot of the problems we had is that, or at least that I had, is that I thought about this stuff as themes, but wasn't sure, like, if it was worth, st- if I should, like, state it directly. But, like, it, it ended up causing a lot of problems because we, we got some feedback after the, the first episode came out with our discussion of, like, gender and like why is the the pronoun of she used as a default by the by the narrator and presumably by the ratchai generally and we largely talked about like diegetic reasons that could be the case like you know we 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 tried to spin out a theory of like is this indicative of some kind of like matriarchal tendency within the ratchai um or something like that and uh we also thought maybe it was like a translational artifact because the the questions of how you translate ideas that aren't shared between cultures seems like something that could be important to this to, to this text. But something we didn't give enough time to is like, well, yeah, but there's also just like the straightforward kind of what's the phrase doylistic feminist purpose of saying like, well, in actual English, for a very long time, there was a standard that he and him could be used as, like, default non-gendered pronouns. And this is just kind of inverting that and inverting that expectation. Well, the other thing I think is worth kind of thinking about is I know you talked about, how, like, you mentioned something like the Raj has no gender. They mm-hmm. don't have a concept of gender. And I don't think that's exactly accurate. I think the Raj has has a concept of gender they have one gender the gender is she her everyone is a sister everyone is a mother like that's how it's just considered like it doesn't matter what your sex is because your gender is always a girl see now this is interesting because that was kind of the part of the lens i was approaching it from early on but the feedback i got kind of was suggesting that we should maybe consider the opposite that like she in this context is not conveying a gender right like it's it's used as a pronoun but it's what was the example they use it was like you know she can also mean boat right and in that way the the meaning of the ragi third person pronoun might be to convey no gender but it's being translated as a gendered pronoun uh, here's an interesting question right mm-hmm. is that like what what is exactly gender in this context like in in like in western society where you have two-ish genders according mm-hmm. to like the mainstream egregores mm-hmm. like there's it's a if there's an implied dichotomy that is created or if you had a like a species with three genders you have an implied like like three-way split that it that is kind of like but if you are a mono like if you have a if you have a culture that's a mono gender then mm-hmm. it, you know it begs the question what exactly is the idea of gender still doing because it's not serving a differentiation purpose anymore it's more serving a like it's like citizen is their gender and what it means to be their gender is to participate in the rotch in a in a way that is a being a good citizen 
Yeah, see, this this is actually something that we mentioned in like DMs or something be- before this. But like we said in the first episode that Sivarden um, is probably best understood as being a gender. And you said that you think they would be better understood as non-binary. And I asked at that point, like, what would the distinction be between having having like no gender in a society which doesn't have genders or at least says that it doesn't care at all about those distinctions versus um like having a gender sorry having some particular gender which everyone else in your society also shares like at that point what is the word gender doing because if it's not distinctive and if it's not trying to relate itself to some like sexual distinction you know what is what is it is it just a social role that you're supposed to play i mean maybe it's something like there is no word gender in mm-hmm. raj because everyone is the same gender so there doesn't mm-hmm. need to be a word for it and the the word actually is like a like an import because you know you're interacting with all these outside cultures who have this thing that they call gender which involves the different this differentiation that you don't care about but they seem to mm-hmm. yeah i mean that was that was something I was thinking about in the the last section, the section before this one, because the the whole scene with uh, Sivarden disciplining or like reprimanding some of her troops because of a romantic entanglement they had. You remember that? It's a very like yeah. odd scene because it feels like there's a component to it that we're not seeing or like a component of it that is so clear to these characters that they don't feel the need to specify it, but is like critically important to their cultural understanding of what's happening. Well, I think it's gotta be like, you, you gotta think like, how does a monogendered culture deal with things like sexual violence? There has to be a kind of different way of thinking about it than thinking about it in a, in a highly gendered way, because you don't have gender to, use as a framing device we're talking mm-hmm. about it with yeah i mean like there's discussion of the fact that soldiers or human soldiers doing annexations sometimes like rape people right so it's it still happens and we know that like neither the yeah, purpose yeah. nor the effect of being a non-gendered society has been the elimination of sex yes there is still the sexes still exist they just don't denote anything. Like mm-hmm. you could be, you know, male or female and you can present however you want. And that doesn't affect your quote unquote gender in the Raj. Your quote unquote gender is always she, her and citizen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and to that extent, I think I can see some of the the, the parallels you're making with the the culture as well. Right. Because it's like, the culture well sort of yes and no because the culture does have bodily autonomy like you can transition at any time but it also does kind of have sexism to a certain degree like there's expectations based upon your your appearance and your your physical traits yeah um which is an odd thing about the books. That might just be, you know, Ian Banks writing in the 80s, you know? Yeah, honestly, I think that's all it can be because there's there's lip service paid to the idea that the the culture of the culture is basically non like to, to a large degree non-gendered right like there, there's discussion of the fact that moraine doesn't have gendered pronouns for example but then in practice what we actually see is well Every single woman in these books is like a really tall dominatrix and every single man in these books is a soldier. Like not <laughs> not actually, but to like a large degree. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or or in the one ca- in the place of player of games, the male character is like Elias Yudkowsky. Yeah, I mean, there's if you want to see us draw all the parallels, we did it in our our, our culture episodes, dear listeners. But like th- there's there's a lot of 
attractors towards particular categories that the male and female characters go towards in these books. The, the female characters are often more de- focused on things like their their appearance and their like upkeep of their social situation. And also they're all really tall, which I think was literally just author appeal because there's never an explanation given as to why. And then the male characters often have like weird like in-universe weird and regressive ideas about sex and gender that are more regressive than the rest of their culture would point them towards and complicated feelings about that fact. And like there's some in-universe justifications for it based on like the fact that the protagonist characters often have had a weird background that has put them in contact with these ideas. But ultimately... You, you do kind of have to give the dualistic read of it's probably just so that these characters will be more relatable to an audience that has like a traditional Western view of what men and women usually are. Yeah. What were we talking about? We were kind of branched there from gender and we were kind of like just the way that the, the Raj is like a monogendered culture. Yeah, and I think like the Rajai have very, we we get some of it in the section that we were reading for this week, the the 8 through 11 one, they have a lot of expectations, both of citizens and of non-citizens, you know, they have like, there was one particular thing that stood out to me, which was like their view of mental health, um, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, steadiness. Uh, yeah, steadiness. You you gotta have steadiness. It's important, and you can, you know someone's of good breeding if they have steadiness, and that's why they deserve to be in power and control and authority and so forth. And steadiness is basically the idea of like when you are under pressure, you won't crack. Right? You'll be able to handle what what situations yeah. you're put under. It's you like won't... stoicism. Yeah, you won't need medical attention and you won't need psychological attention and you won't need re-education to fix your problems. You'll just be able to take it. And immediately this is undercut because, like, Esk just says, now conveniently, you will also find that steady people find excuses to leave their work for long periods of time and go do other socially approved activities like going and being in a monastery for a couple of years. But I'm sure that's just a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. The and slack it's, thing. It's like you you the slack to be to appear steady is hidden. Yeah. And it, it it's just like Oh, why are you able to go to this monastery? Well, it's because your family had enough money that you have those kinds of options. Whereas people who don't have those kinds of options, they're the kind of people who need to seek help or seek re-education or whatever. And so it's it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It's like, oh yeah, of course this confirms that people from the high houses don't need help because they just get help in socially approved ways. I think this is actually something that creates some very interesting perverse incentives. Like it's one of those things that's like, like I don't want to give spoilers, but pay attention mm-hmm. to that fact as you're continuing through this, because there will continue to be like places where that idea gets played with. Yeah. Just like the people the people who are on the right side of the respectability line make every excuse for, for to be allowed to do whatever they want to do. And the people on the wrong side are given no, no, like nothing they can ever do will sufficiently prove that they are like worthy of respect and anything that they do will be like explained away as indicative of some other thing. Well, there's also something interesting that happens where it's like if you're on the like the quote unquote right side of the line, then it's there's this assumption that you never should need help. And if you do, it's a sign that you were never really on the right side of the line in the first place. And so you have to kind of always hide if you ever have any problems. You can never reveal it or show it. You have to maintain this facade of decorum at all times, which is definitely like a thing you see in like a lot of these like. Like it is a, like that is a cultural trope that pops up repeatedly in human societies. Yeah, definitely. And, and also it plays into like an interesting thing, which is that Esk does hate Anna Andermiana, but 
she doesn't hate all of Rajai, right? Like, she doesn't hate all Rajai people, and she encourages Strigan to have some empathy for the, the Rajai, which is an interesting thing to do, given that, you know, presumably she sees herself as having been seriously wronged by the Rajai. You know, correctly, I should say. But the... Well, I think that there's a, like... Like, she does like, Esk doesn't consider herself to be a Raj citizen, mm-hmm. but, like, she is a product of Raj culture. She is a creation of the Raj, like, in a almost more pure sense than a human citizen would be. She embodies their cultural values more strongly by virtue of having been, like, an AI for thousands of years. Yeah, it's it's... It's interesting, though, right? Because you could see a view of this where the subtext of those scenes where she's saying, like, oh, if you were in the position of a Rajai, you would probably be doing similar things to them, right? And you, at Dr. Stragan, are not really considering what it would be like to be a Rajai and how that would affect your moral view of, of situations. Where you could see a scene like that where the subtext is... And so I'm not really that bad, right? I participated yeah, yeah. in genocides or whatever, but I was doing it because I thought it was the right thing to do. But that doesn't seem like it's the subtext. It seems like she's not defending herself. She's defending, like, th- her human crews. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's a... Well, like, 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 I love Esk as a character, and, like, something interesting about her is that, like, she is incredibly dissociated the entire narrative she's just so deeply dissociated that like really intense things will happen to her and she'll describe it in this like very clinical detached curious way like oh that's weird why is that happening Yeah, there's one of the, uh, like, a a thing I heard about this book, just like on some other podcast with people talking about it, is that the violence in this book has a weird vibe because it just kind of happens and is treated with the same seriousness as, like, any other random thing that's happening. So it's like, she kills three or four people that are on that sledge that were coming to to get her when she's going to to Dr. Strugan's house. And that whole that whole fight takes like three lines. It's just like, and I shot all of it. Yeah, yeah. It's very like, like PTSD brained. Like, yeah. I think maybe one of the most esque lines is something that hap- that she thinks about herself in like the first chapter, which is like, I try not to think about why I do the things I do. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like her, like the the personality that is like stamped onto her that controls her body and walks around and does things is in fully in control but is very has never properly like learned to be in a body because you know they spent you know centuries being a ship and having their mind distributed out through all of these different like mm-hmm. minds and bodies and places and then you know well now you're just in one what this one ancillary and you were, it's just like, I don't know, there's the, the line, you know, the, the crazy Vortigaunt in Half-Life Alex, where he's like, yeah, the combine, they like drilled into my brain and cut off my connection to the Vortessence. I'm alone in my head. Hmm. I, I've actually never played Half-Life Alex, but I can definitely see some similarity there. And, yeah. But it's even it's even maybe more than that, because like, I, I don't know how the, what the lore behind the Vortigaunts is, but that they may have some sense of self and then a sense of something connected to the self, but beyond it. But the description, like we, we get multiple descriptions of specifically what is the sense of self of one ask back when she's connected to justice of Torin, And it's that she is all of those things. She is all of the ancillary segments that are currently unfrozen, and she is Justice of Torin simultaneously. And so it's gotta yeah, be yeah, really yeah. fucking weird to only be one thing, as 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 she often comments upon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like having like having this really vast, expansive sensorium, and then suddenly having it crushed down into this one tiny window. It's like, like be it's like being like a like nearly like like 
locked in like if you were like paraplegic but you can mm-hmm. move like your fingers or something or your eyes and that's all yeah and i think there's what's the phrase i'm looking for there's definitely some analogy you could draw to like people who have like phantom limbs after they get an amputation or something but i do really like the descriptions of how it has affected her like instincts and responses to things there's a scene where she says something like she refers to keep her back against the wall and stay in corners because that being able to have a a, a a field of view that encompasses everything that she should be seeing is more natural to her than only being able to see through one set of eyes and having her back against the wall is the only like way she can kind of replicate that experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ugh, it's messed up. I'm definitely very curious about what I mean, it's interesting that we get in chapter eight here the fact that ancillaries are designed, or at least they're they're capable, whether or not they were to be capable of existing and functioning independent of each other, right? I mean, it seems Which, like that is that's like it would make sense as to why that would be in the design because you know you're go you're dropping these these are soldiers that you're dropping into a war zone. To- shoot at bad guys and mm-hmm. you know the bad guys might have like ecm or jamming or like all sorts of other things that disrupt your communications and they need yeah. to be able to operate independently in that in that case but it does like further complicate the question that is so often like raised here which is like not what exactly is going on with the internal experience of ancillaries when they are connected to ships right because People outside the Ragi call them corpse soldiers, and they have a very clear idea of like, oh, they are just being remote piloted by the ships, right? And even some Ragi seem to think this, but it's it's clearly not true based on the various things we've seen. A, they can act independently, but even before we learned that, we learned that one-esque likes to sing, but that isn't because Justice of Torin likes them to sing. They like to sing on their own. And while Justice of Torin could stop them, it doesn't have to stop them. So there is independent intelligence still within them. The way I the way I kind of interpreted this is in a kind of like like a like a like a learning like a reinforcement learning way where it's like imagine if you took you know, say like you have a 20-year-old human that has 20 years worth of memories of being an independent human, and you remove all of those so that you strip their mind down to the level of like an infant and then you refill it all back in with all of the memories of being justice of Torin, mm-hmm. and you just stick that in so that you replace their entire like ego and superego apparatus all of the mechanisms that they use for like rewards and learning and like values and like everything with the eventual you get a separate mind. It is a totally distinct, freestanding human consciousness. Like it is still like a 20 year old human. It's just that it is now a 20 year old human that is a perfect, like, mind stamp of this other consciousness that exists. And then mm-hmm. you wire the two of them together so that you maintain this really high degree of fidelity correspondence between them at all times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that definitely makes sense with, with what we've seen, especially because says re-education doesn't remove memories, but it represses them. And then in contrast to that, when Strugan raises the idea of like, we might be able to bring back to the forefront, the basically the person you were before you were an ancillary just says that person is dead. Like, no, 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 no reservations about that. Now, to a certain extent, that could be Esk taking offense or just wanting to be absolutely clear on the fact that she has no interest in undergoing some process that has a risk of annihilating her sense of self, which would be justified. Right? Yeah, I mean, that feels very much like a like dead name is dead. Like, yeah, we get it. You're trans. Like, <laughs> But, you know, whether... Whether that is because of an underlyingly true fact about how the ancillary process affects the brain of someone, I'm not sure, right? Because I, I figure Esk would probably say that whether or not there was any chance of recovering the memories, because regardless of whether it's true, it would definitely mean you'd kill me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Well, there's also this weird thing where it's like, again, because of how dissociated, like, one-esque is from her body, you don't really notice it, but it also seems like she legit enjoys being one-esque quite a lot. Hmm. I don't know if I really see that. Oh, you mean one-esque back when she's, like, connected to the J.O.T.? I mean, yes, but then also, like, separately from, like, like I think she enjoyed being, and then, like, she, it, like, she, like, despite how, like, like, she's on her own in this kind of shitty situation, like, is not necessarily having a bad time with the life that she's living. Yeah, like, she is, she's self-actualized to a higher degree than she probably was when well, I don't know if I'd even say that, though, because I guess her her perception of herself as an ancillary would be that she is just as much a part of, like, the justice of Torin as the justice of Torin is a part of her, right? If it's, like, what you said and they've got the same mind, like, there would probably be no reason that there would be disagreement between the two outside of, you know, exceptional situations where there's some disconnection that happens. Yeah, unless they were, like, allowed to be disconnected for, like, a long time and started to drift apart from each other. But even then, it's, like, one of those, if they were, had a high degree of cooperation in the first place, even if they did start to drift apart, if you did bring them back together, it might not take very long to shake back out another, like, well, we actually do get along. We are still the same entity, aren't we? Oh, yeah, we are, right? We should Mm -hmm. maybe cooperate. I mean... One of the interesting one of the interesting things that people in this universe get wrong about ancillaries all the time is they think of them like robots. And by that, one of the several things that I, I could mean by that is that they think ancillaries don't have emotions. But all the time we're getting descriptions of the internal experience of ancillaries, and it's like they tons of emotions right they have a lot of thoughts and feelings about what's going on and even when they don't acknowledge it like in some of the earlier chronological flashbacks like when one-esque was helping cyberden uh early in cyberden's career and they were like and cyberden was like abusing prisoners there was I think no description of like there wasn't notes about the emotion that was being felt, but very clearly there was emotion guiding those actions. Right. Or at least a desire like empathy, you know, she had empathy for the prisoners. Yeah. Like I like like I when I think of like ask, I don't think of somebody who displays a lot of emotions but who is, it's like that kind of like the Malcolm Reynolds character who's like, tries to be super cold, but is ultimately like, gonna do what they think is the right thing. Well, that's the other thing is, one-esque when connected to the J.O.T., to the J- seemed to be perfect in never displaying emotions, right? Because there's that scene where they're talking to that one random human officer who I don't remember the name of outside of where Skyat and On are having sex. And they the officer asks like something about why the Justice of Torin does uh, why one esque does or doesn't do something, and one esque smiles to make a point, and they say, "Don't do that. It looks incredibly creepy." And the the like narrator note is, "I know I smiled perfectly, but it it just seems off because I never make any expressions unless it's intentional." Right. Yeah. 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 And so it like there's very much the performance of emotion and like. I think there's definitely some some important reading to be there done there in the context of like neurodivergence and non-standard displays of emotion and communication, right? Because one esque in in the few, the flash forward scenes, like with Strigan, can perform emotion, but Strigan notes that it is. It, it like visibly obviously performative you know she she yeah, the says real emotions are super like like she's super dissociated from her real emotions the only time you notice them is when they like come out and like how she speaks or like 
the quality of the narration almost will shift a little bit as her like moods change. But then sometimes like, her narration will say that she's feeling something, right? Like she will yeah, yeah. say like Cyverden thought I was mad at her and she was right. I was mad at her. You know, something like that will yeah, sometimes yeah. come up. But then she won't do anything about it until, you know, she's decided I'm going to deck Cyberton across the face, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a very, like, there's a, like, there there's the, like, like, she notices the emotions happening, but they're, like, this distant thing that's, like, a, like, a thing that she sees on a screen that's reading out that doesn't, like, directly affect her. Right, like, she's aware of it. But then, on the other side of that, sometimes she'll do something motivated purely by emotion and just, like, distantly be like, oh, I'm kind of surprised I did that, as if she was not in control of herself. Well, I think that's because that kind of comes from the like sense of distance that she feels like she has from her emotions. She mm-hmm. feels like there's this this thing that just happens that's outside of her, and it's like she's got total control over them, but she doesn't really. And so they can manipulate her with you know I'm totally in control of myself. She says as she gets angrier and angrier. Yeah, and like. The fact that she took Cyberden, right? She says, or she thinks when she's doing it, I have no idea why I'm doing this, right? I don't know why I'm I'm helping Cyberden. I didn't particularly like Cyberden, and they're none of my problem, and I've got all these other things to deal with. I have no reason to do this, and then she just does it. Or, like, similarly, in a later chapter, she's thinking, like, I can't remember exactly what her thought process is, but she just like decks Cyberden across the face before she can even really think about it. But the the line is actually, there was a moment where I might have stopped myself from hitting Cyberden, and I let it pass. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it, it's there's it, she she sort of sees it as separate from the part of her that is like generating coherent choices and actions even though like yeah it's like the emotions are happening but they aren't affecting my decisions my decisions are totally separate my actions are totally separate even when they're really not to the point where like she'll anticipate making more emotionless decisions than she actually will and then it'll be like huh that's funny i wonder why i did that yeah or and like it, it ties in interestingly with the other things we've heard about one-esque conception of emotions, right? Because in the flashback sequences, there's there's a part where she's she I think it's the same discussion that's being had with that officer because the officer kind of says something like do ancillaries have emotions or like do ship AIs have emotions? And she says, "Oh yeah, of course we have emotions." It would be extremely inefficient for us to not have emotions because trying to figure out the exact right or to take about every little thing would be inefficient. You'd have to calculate too far in advance and factor in too many little things for too many little choices. So for the little choices, we use emotions. And that's interesting as a way that that ends up feeding into her conceptualization of her own emotions after she's separated from the justice of Torin, right? Yeah, there's this like it's almost like the the like to put it in a little bit of an AI parlance. The emotions are convenient attractors attractor states that get you ninety percent of the way towards where you want the agent that you're building to be anyway. So why not use them? Yeah. But then also, when when Esk is talking about Kef, right, like right at the beginning, when she's thinking about like Cyberden must be a Kef addict, she's, what she says about the drug is some people believe that without emotions, they'll be enlightened or dispassionately logical, but it doesn't work that way, which is a really, it's an odd thing to say, because it implies that you like you know for a fact that it doesn't work that way, right? You have... Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. You've maybe had that experience of being without emotion or trying to be without emotion. So I, I would wonder if the protagonist has done Keth before, and, like, you could definitely see why they'd want to. And, and the protagonist's fascination with suicide is also really interesting because she often... She asks Cyberden a lot of questions 
that are basically either the subtext or the text of the question is, why don't you just kill yourself, right? Like, if your life sucks, why don't you just kill yourself? And this bothers Cyberden, obviously, because that's kind of a shitty thing to ask somebody. But I think the reason she's asking that, or at least what, what seems like it would make the most sense, is it's a question she asks herself a lot. Because she used to be part of this bigger thing. She used to be part of the, the Justice of Torah, and she used to be connected to all of these other segments, and now she's not. And she presumably feels a lot of loss about that, and she's just kind of motivating herself forward via this mission to kill Anna and I. But there has to be, especially with how, like, she so constantly thinks, like, there's no way this is going to work. I'm doing it, but I don't have a chance of meaningful success. So I, I feel like there's got to have been a time where she she dealt with some hopelessness. Yeah, or like, I mean, there's been a lot. Like, there's been a lot. Like this, 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 the this the time skip forward is set like 20 years mm -hmm. after the events of the time. You know, the the, per, the prior time. Yeah. So there's a lot of intervening, like you know, what is, what has she been doing in all this time, you know? Yeah, and the only thing we know that happened in between those two events is she risked her life doing some kind of work that got her a staggeringly large amount of money to go and buy that gun. And there's also, she also has a specific, I don't know if it's came up in the story, but there's a specific place that she always says that she's from, this, is this one particular, like, insular, yeah. like, human civilization that's distant from everyone else, so it's convenient. The Garantate. It, would, it may or may not be have some root, accurate roots because Stragan suggests that the ancillary which made up the body that one currently has comes from one particular place. I can't remember what it was. I don't think I wrote it down. She she specifies like you look like you're from this one place. And because you look like you're from that place, it would kind of make sense that you would be from the Garantate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's it's based on whatever, like, you know, human ethnicity or whatever she was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, another thing that I find really interesting is the the idea of singing specifically in the flash forward segments, because in the in the scene with the child where she's trying to calm the child down, whose mother got injured, she asks if the child knows any songs and basically, like, encourages the child to sing for her, but she doesn't sing for the child, which is odd because she presumably knows a lot of songs because she still has her memories from the Justice of Torrent. I, I figure that's, like, be she preferred to sing in a chorus back when she was part of, like, a, a larger ancillary unit, and she doesn't want to sing on her own. I think there's a interesting story reason for that, but I don't want to give spoilers. Oh, okay, that's that's not the kind of fair enough. But like, she does sing sometimes. I want to say, if I recall correctly, she plays an instrument, but she doesn't actually sing. So far, but there's a bunch of like there are a bunch of like song lyrics and like. Hmm. Maybe I was misreading that because I was reading that as she's playing on the instrument and the tune she's playing to is the same one as the like my heart is a fish swimming in the water grass thing. But yeah, maybe she was singing there, but just for herself, but she didn't want to sing for other people. Or she was, well, no, because the child wouldn't have recognized any of the songs. That wouldn't have been a concern. I, I just found it interesting she didn't sing for the kid and didn't offer to. She instead asked the kid to sing songs for her. Which yeah, is she collects songs. Like, she's kind of a music hoarder, it seems like. Yeah, which is like, it just makes sense as a thing she would do. She just likes to learn new songs. But when the kid doesn't, when the kid says she doesn't know any and also doesn't know any games, there's a line that's something like, I had completely run out of ideas about how to keep, how to occupy the kid's mind. And it was like, well, why not sing for them, <laughs> right? Because if you know all these songs, presumably you could. So I thought there was something going on there. But maybe I was just misreading the things. Yeah. No, I think um, there is a specific reason there. I just think that it's one of those like, well, you'll see. 
All right, fair enough. Or if like it gets to a point and you haven't caught it, I can like point it out. But I because it's like a fairly like it's not like a super played up thing, but it is something that's like at least made a note of. It's like mm-hmm. you know, huh, neat. As far as like specifically what goes on in eight through eleven, the big thing that I think that I thought was like being talked about was the idea of individual action and collective action and the like importance of the importance of like doing the things that you think are right regardless of whether you believe they'll necessarily be effective because like there's a lot of discussion of the idea that like people within the ragi do object to the immoral things being done by the ragi to, to varying degrees and like to varying amounts depending on the case but like garcidae a lot of people thought what they were doing was wrong, but almost everybody still did it. There are only four cases where someone, like, refused orders because they were so immoral. And that's among thousands of people. But yeah, yeah, yeah. if everybody who had had, you know, misgivings had just done, just said, no, we won't do it, then, you know, Garcidae wouldn't have been destroyed because probably it was actually a plurality of them that didn't think this should be done. But it's very difficult to make that coordination mechanism work out when the first, like, hundred people who say something are just get executed, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, of course. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I... Something I had thought was going on in the previous chapter was, oh, we got this discussion of how Anandermiadnai is connected to every other, like, iteration of Anandermiadnai, and uh, it's similar to the way ancillaries are connected to each other. So I was like, oh, there, this could be a thing where, like, there's a central computer, right? There's, like, a central AI that's facilitating this connection and making making it possible for them to to all keep this central set of values. And so if you could find and destroy that, then you could, you know, take out every Anandermiadnai at once. Well... Well, here's an interesting thing to just kind of ponder is mm-hmm. if you just just going if you look at the technology of the universe, right? They clearly have faster than light travel and they have, you know, very impressive like weapons and shielding and stuff technology like 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 sublight engines where they don't seem to have is uh they don't have a a, a what's it called an, an ansible. They don't have instantaneous communications or even just less than instantaneous but still faster than light. Their well, actually, I, I wasn't even sure they had like I wasn't even sure they had faster than light travel, honestly, because they they need to use cryopods for everybody. And the, the lifespans of ships are like really long, which implied to me in tandem that maybe they don't even have that. I, I don't think so, because it's like, no, I'm pretty sure they do have like faster than light drives. And like at later points in the story, they reference it pretty like concretely it's like bsg style jump drive the ship just teleports from one point to another as far as i and it's you know very energy energy intensive it's like a big deal you, you don't want to do it too often it's not good you for don't the want engines. To do it too often and it's not really it's not super used as like a uh like like ships like 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 space combat is not really like the scale focus of the story this is a lot mm-hmm. more zoomed in so it's there's a like well we don't really like you don't really get the spe- like specifics of how the drive works or how good the engines are well, how fast it takes to travel from places but just the fact that when we see Justice of Torin o- over a planet we're often given the piece of context that like oh yeah and I've been over this planet for thirty years twenty years eighty years that gives you an idea of like how difficult is it to do the faster than light thing in this setting? And it's like, well, we're not leaving this place for quite a while. If you're here, you're here. Um, well, I think that's less the, about the drives and more about what the, what the justices are. The justices are these long-term invasion forward mm-hmm. operating bases. They're essentially like m- marine assault ships. They mm-hmm. stroll over, park up in orbit, drop off a bunch of troops, and then remain on, on station to provide support for all of those troops that they deployed on the surface. And mm-hmm. as long as you're doing an emancipation and you're occupying this planet and you've got to pacify the population, you've got to maintain at least a few justices nearby. And maybe, you know, during it's implied during the initial you know, the Raj shows up and, and declares that you're you're part of the Raj now. 
they use a lot of justices, like hundreds and hundreds, and then most mm-hmm. of them fuck off, but a few will stay on station for potentially a long, long time to make sure that things stay stable. But you were saying you're making a broader point about communication in this setting. Yeah, but despite all this, so they don't, what they don't have is, they don't have faster than light communications technology other than what they do with their ships. If you want to send a message faster than light, you put in a ship and send the ship faster than light, which Hmm. means that you can't have a galactic, you know, a empire wide hive mind Mm -hmm. that is maintaining, updating itself in real time. Yes. Which is why it's so important that they all be like basically the same person, right? Is even though you maybe don't have communication with the Andermian and Andermian eye in like, you know, the the hyper belt or whatever. You don't need to talk with them because, you know, they're going to make the same choice you would. Because they are you. Yeah. Which is why it's like, you know, you can see why this happens, right? It's a solution to that problem. If you can't solve that technological problem of having communication across our entire empire, you can substitute with the technological solution of a bunch of clones of the guy who's allowed to make decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as as I was getting at, I think it's actually much more interesting that if Esk isn't like trying to blow up the 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 one brain that an Andromian eye has somewhere that's like the the load bearing an Andromian eye brain because like you said that doesn't really make sense with the technology and also it's just kind of like oh what do you know the the villain had a critical load bearing weakness <laughs> that destroys their entire army it makes more sense if they just if they simply do not have a central load bearing consciousness and they are just all collectively an Andermi and I, and mm-hmm. they update each other as they interact, and then when they meet, they swap memories and so forth. No, there is that line about how they're connected in the same way that ancillaries are connected, but I imagine that's just like two other an Andermi and I's, not you know, to every an Andermi and I. Well, I assume it is to every an Andermi and I, but like light speed, how often are two much less? every Anander, me and I in the same place. Well, that's one interesting thing, though, because there is that that flashback scene that happens in one of these chapters where there's a surprise visit to the Justice of Torin by an Andromedni, and it's not one, it's four of them. Four of them come visit her and talk to the Esk unit. Right, and this is considered, like, very weird and a huge deal. Like, why did they do that? Who knows? But... I think it's really interesting if what Esk is doing here is just, no, what I'm doing of following through on a plan that I have that will maybe kill one, if I'm lucky, Anna Andromed and I, it's not going to make a significant int- like change to the galaxy. But I, I am so tired of people failing to do the right thing because they use that logic. If everybody did what I'm doing right now, things would get better. And so I'm going to do it for that reason. If I stand up and kill one and Andrew, me and I prove that it's possible, lots of people will stand up everywhere and kill all and I's too. Yeah, that's a good theory. Yeah. And I mean, there's definitely some historical precedent to that. Like, propaganda of the deed was this idea right i think v for vendetta was this idea well i think that's what v for vendetta was pulling it from right this is like a historical thing i cannot remember any of my of my sources but it was like quite old i thought uh propaganda of the deed yeah okay it it is an insurrectionary anarchist idea from the late 19th and earliest early 20th century which basically said the the reason that people do not rise up against their oppressors is that they believe that the, the sources of hegemonic power are like indestructible and unchangeable. So if you just go murder a king, that can start a revolution, even if you don't have any further plans. Yeah, yeah. Um, so here's another here's another question that might be a kind of interesting different direction to take theory theorizing is that mm-hmm. what what would make this make sense what would make what asks doing less of a bad idea 
I mean, in a sense, I think her just being guided by morality more than practicality is fine, right? Like, I think it's fine for a character to not have a great plan about how, especially for a character who's so heavily disassociated, right? To not have a great plan about how what they're doing can really work out in the long run to achieve their ultimate political objectives, right? But if she is just trying to, yeah, th- there is a theory there where like, yeah, you kill Anna Andromedni, maybe you show that this is possible when people didn't believe it was possible. Maybe you instigate rebellion and revolt amongst the broader Rajai populace. There's definitely a possibility there. I, I don't... I'm really, I'm really, I, I feel like this might be a good spot to stop for today because I'm really <laughs> interested in seeing what you think, like, just, just, you're going to want to get to the next part because it's going to get, like, a lot of things happen very fast. That does seem to be the way of this book. <laughs> Sometimes things just happen all at once. Okay, well, yeah. thank you so much for for being a guest. I will probably release this as like a bonus episode, I guess, since we didn't sure. really talk about everything that happens in chapter in the chapters, but like we had a lot of interesting thoughts about the book generally. Yeah, yeah, and I'm totally cool like coming on to do the like the proper recording thing next week. Awesome. Thank you so much. You've been really great. I have just realized we never introduced you. <laughs> Well, yeah, we kind of, I mean, we just kind of like started recording after we'd already been talking for like. How- <laughs> uh, if you'd like to give an introduction for the audience's sake, I guess, so that they can know who to refer to when they're talking about that cool guest with all those good ideas. I'm Octavia Nozen. I'm at Slime Priestess on Twitter. And yeah, I, I like void stuff. Do you have any other cool plugs you would like to give in case anyone else wants to in case anyone wants to see the various things that you do? Oh, you can find me at voidgoddess.org. All right. Very cool. Thank you again. And thank you for listening, dear listeners, since GSV is not here and was regrettably unavailable for this recording. I will have to be the one who says, enjoy yourselves. It's later than you think. <laughs> <laughs>